Good morning, everyone. It's good to have you here this morning. It's a different kind of Sunday as we're getting ready for VBS. Uh, next week, if you come in next Sunday, this stage won't look the same. The building won't look the same. It's about to be transformed. We're really excited about that. So if it's your first time here, we're good, good to have you. Uh, we're glad that you're here. My name is Pastor Milo, and uh, we're going to get into God's Word this morning. So Psalm chapter 51, if you can find your way there, Psalm chapter 51. Uh, you've got Bibles there in front of you. Uh, if you're using a device that you need to turn on, I'm in the English Standard Version here this morning. I read a story this week. Uh, J.D. Greer is a pastor, and he used this as an illustration. Uh, he talked about a guy named Danny in his church who came to visit uh, in college. His mom came to visit him in college. Uh, he just moved in with this girl named Allison, so the two of them were living together. And his mom kind of had a problem with that. He said, Mom, don't get stressed out. Uh, don't worry, it's platonic. We're just saving money. We're just moving in together. And then she thought, well, there's, there's no way. This girl is very pretty. Uh, there's no chance that they are just roommates. And so the mom came over. She had dinner uh, with the two of them. And as they're having dinner there together, uh, he, uh, she said to uh, Allison, she said, Allison, I love that watch. I've been wanting... Uh, one of those watches, can I see it? And so she handed it over to her, and then uh, they go on with dinner. A couple days go by, and Allison asks Danny, she says, your mother, I think your mother stole my watch. It's gone. I can't find it anywhere. And, and, and he said, I'm sure you just misplaced it. You need to find it. But she said, I think it, she dropped it in her purse or something. And so he sent an email to his mother the next day and asked her if she you know, Mom, did you, I'm not saying that you took the watch, but do you think that you may have misplaced it? The watch is missing, and you seem to be the last person who laid eyes on it. And a couple days later, the mother responds in an email back and said, Dear Danny, obviously I'm not saying that you are sleeping with Allison, but the fact remains that if she'd been sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the watch was on her pillow right where I left it. <laughs> We all know what it's like to be caught in. How many times have you seen a video, or you may have one of these videos yourself, of a, of a toddler, of a child, after they get into a bag of M&Ms or a bag of Reese's, and the parent is asking the child, did you eat any candy? And it's all over their face, and it's on their hands, and it's in their ears, and emphatically the child says, no, no, I didn't, I didn't eat any candy. That's kids for you, right? Or is that all of us? We do the same thing as adults, don't we? David did. That's the passage that we're looking at here. If you remember your stories, you know that David is, your Bible stories, you know that David is famous for two Bible stories. The first one is he defeats Goliath. It's a successful story. It's a wonderful story of victory, the defeat over Goliath or the rest of the army of Israel cowers and hides, and he goes out and fights this behemoth of a man with just a stone and a sling. Not only did he defeat him, but without wearing armor, he makes the name of God famous in all of the area. And this blaspheming brute, as he calls him, falls before him, and David becomes a national hero. But there's the other story, isn't there? The Bible doesn't shy away from the flaws that we see in its heroes. Today in Psalm 51, you see the title, and most of your Bibles have the title right there at the top of the page. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in into Bathsheba. 
The story of Bathsheba is also well known. This is the other story, the infamous story of David as well. From 2 Samuel chapter 11, let me read it for you. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, was walking on the roof to the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers, and he took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent word, and she told David, I am pregnant. Busted. When the word came to David that Bathsheba was pregnant with his child, he devised a plan. Many of you are familiar with the plan that he devised. He calls Bathsheba's husband Uriah back from the front lines of battle to spend some time with Bathsheba, but Uriah would not cooperate. He even brought him into the king's court and got him liquored up real good and sent him back home, and he still would not cooperate because while his soldiers were out in the field, he did not think it was uh, fitting for him to go home to his wife and enjoy being home with his wife. So he stayed in the courtyard with the soldiers. So David puts the cover up into phase two. He sends Uriah back into battle, the most dangerous part of the battle, and has him killed because the army withdraws and leaves him there. This is definitely not the behavior of a hero, David. David marries Bathsheba. He plans to go on with his life as if nothing happened but God knew. God sent his prophet Nathan to challenge David. David told a story about this rich man who was going through the area, stealing a poor man's one and only lamb. Outraged, David said that this rich man deserved to die. And Nathan simply responds, you are that man. You are that man. If you're familiar with the passage, I've always wondered how long was the awkward pause between that line and the next line. Talk about an awkward moment. The conviction was inescapable. David's actions were inexcusable. David was caught red-handed. I want to clarify something as we get started here this morning. Today we're talking specifically, this psalm talks specifically about the word conviction. About conviction. Conviction comes from God. Shame and come from the enemy. So conviction comes from God. Conviction leads us towards a path of restoration. God has made a plan. God has made a way for people to be restored and redeemed through Jesus Christ. Guilt, on the other hand, guilt is a continuous cycle of shame, guilt, and suffering that tells us don't continue, just quit, just give up. You'll never be able to make it. And it reminds us of the same sin again and again and again. And this is a device that the enemy will use against us. Because goal number one of the enemy, of, of the devil, Satan, that great deceiver, is to make us feel alone, hopeless, and worthless. You see, he knows how powerful God really is. And he's going to use every possible tactic that he can to bring us down and to further separate us from God. Conviction, however, is God's way of gathering us and pulling us back to him because of his great love for us. In this psalm, Psalm 51, David confesses his sins to God. He holds nothing 
back. David does not blame anyone else for his errors. He makes no attempts to excuse his wrongdoing, his actions. David simply appeals to God's mercy and God's love. Knowing that even when he is caught, caught red-handed, he too can be forgiven. If you found your way there, Psalm chapter 51, beginning in verse 1. Let's read together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward beating, and you being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This morning we're going to ask ourselves this question again and again. How are we to approach God when we are convicted of sin? How is it that we are supposed to approach God when we are convicted of sin? And we will see how to as we move our way through Psalm chapter 51. First, we approach God with honesty and humility. When convicted of sin, we are to approach God with honesty and humility. As we are reading this test, let's not, let's not forget who David is. It's David the king. He is the most powerful man in the room. He is the giant slayer. He is the kingdom expander. And he is the one who has just orchestrated the, the death of one of his own military leaders simply because, because it become personally inconvenient for him. This is a man of power. This is a man who other people were afraid of. The most feared man in all of the kingdom. And yet this psalm, written to be shared in public for worship, for all people to hear, David will use the word me 34 times in these verses. He's saying that this error, this sin, is on me. This error, this sin, is mine alone. This sin is mine. There is no one to blame but me. You see, David understands that sin is like a crime. If a criminal is going to be delivered from the effects of his crime, he needs not justice because the crime has been committed. He needs mercy. Sin is this illegal act then. It's a violation of justice. It's an act of lawlessness. It's an act of rebellion, and therefore it requires mercy. That's what sin is. And that's what David throws himself at the mercy of the court. And he says, this is on me. I have sinned. He says, blot out my transgressions. Not only is sin a crime, he understands that sin is also like a debt. A debt that he owes Something owed in its account that has now accumulated to the point that he would never be able to repay it. And the only way to get out of this debt was that that debt would be erased. And thirdly, he says, wash me thoroughly and cleanse me. He understands that sin is an ugly, ugly stain on the soul. Even though the act 
fades off into the past. The thing that he's done, the, the dirty stain still remains. This defiling stain on his soul remains a stigma against his heart. And so he cries out to God to be delivered. He is convicted before God and he cries out to be delivered from these things. King David understands that his sin is not just a happenstance. A combination of unfortunate circumstances which has caused him to do this. No, he recognizes this as sin. He says, I now realize I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Now, we have to be careful here not to misunderstand what's being said. It does not mean that there's anything wrong with the act by which his own birth came into Existence. There is an argument that is out there that his mother, uh, that she in some way had committed adultery or she in some way had done something wrong. Uh, that is not what is being said here at all. There's no evidence of that in Scripture anywhere else uh, to argue for that. What he's saying here is that the act of conception into the human race introduces him into sinful humanity. That he is born, and you or I born, into a sinful race in which sin is already deeply embedded. And there's plenty of people who would challenge this, would argue against this and say, no, aren't we inherently good inside? And the Bible teaches something else. The doctrine of original sin, a theological term, the idea that the, the whole human race aside from Christ would be separated from God. If you want to challenge that, if you want to debate back against that, ask yourself this. Who is it that taught you how to sin? Who educated you on this? Where did you learn to lie? Where did you go to school to learn how you might deceive others? Where did you go to learn how to cheat or desire to make yourself look better in front of others? Did your parents carefully train you to do that. No. Every parent knows that when children are growing up, it shows up what they are doing comes most naturally. It shows up in a baby almost as soon as the baby can express itself. There's this, this independence, this rebellious independence and inerrant selfishness that is in each and every one of us. And it's present even in the tiniest of infants, and it's right there, right from the very beginning. And this is what David is saying. He's saying, I see now that sin is not just a surface problem that can be handled and dealt with lightly. It is a deep problem. It has stained my whole existence. It has ruined my whole nature. Unless I find some type of solution for this polluted soul which is inside of me, I will never recover. I'll never be able to keep from falling back into that sinful pit again. And where will he find the solution? Let's keep reading. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be made clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and sadness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all of my iniquities. And then probably the most famous verse of the passage. Create in me a clean heart, O God. <coughs> a renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
Rejoice to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So how are we to approach God when we are convicted of sin? First, we approach God with honesty, humility. Secondly, seek God's mercy and forgiveness. First, we approach God with honesty and humility. And then secondly, we seek God's mercy and forgiveness. This section begins with the word hyssop. Not, not a word that we use very regularly. If you, you look it up on Wikipedia, you look it up online, you see it's a plant that grew in Israel during that time period. It's used to apply blood often in blood sacrifices on an altar or a doorpost or whatever. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago when we began this series in Psalm, we said that the, the book of Psalms is divided up into five different larger sections uh, and they match up with the first five books, the Pentateuch, Penta meaning five, the first five books of the Bible. And you'll see that actually the Psalms align themselves with that. Here's where the connection comes. In Psalm 51, this is a section that is part of the second book of Psalms that has to do and is a parallel to Exodus. And this is where we see it right here. To be able to be talking about hyssop, to be able to be talking about the sacrifice, you'll remember this is where it all connects because it was hyssop that was used uh, to be able to spread the blood on the doorpost of the Passover. The Israelites were told, the Hebrews were told that uh, they needed to take hyssop and they needed to uh, sacrifice a lamb for their sins and then they would dip the hyssop in the blood and they would mark the doorpost. Do you remember? A doorpost on the right, on the left, and up above. And then the blood would drip from up above there on the ground as well. All representative, all telling a future story of the blood that would be shed on the right, on the left, the crown on the head, and the blood at his feet. All representative of the sacrifice that would come. The blood that was shed for you and for me. Now to David, as he is writing here in Psalms, this is all future. But it still connects for us. Now for David, when he is talking about being purged with hyssop, this is a figurative expression that he is using. Just that he is declaring the need for a blood sacrifice. The animal sacrifice that was going to in the law at that time would cover their sins, albeit temporarily, because another lamb would have to die. Another animal would have to die and shed its blood. There are many people who are troubled about this. If you read through the Old Testament, they're asking the question, why do we see all of this blood in the Old Testament? There are millions of lambs and, and bulls and goats. There's this continual flow of blood that we read about in the Old Testament. Some even have called Judaism a slaughterhouse religion because of this. But God makes it very clear. When we, when we read through the Old Testament, we have our New Testament lenses and we're looking at it, we realize that these sacrifices are always pointing towards the one sacrifice. The one blood sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. His life would have to be laid down in death. These were symbols. These were pictures. These were foreshadowings towards that ultimate sacrifice but then again the question comes to us we ask ourselves the question well why why did he have to die 
I mean, if he is the son of God, couldn't he forgive our sins in a different way? Can't he just make them all disappear? The only answer to that question is this. Sin is so deeply embedded inside of us that it cannot be cured by anything outside of death. This old life has to die. It has to be thrown off. God cannot improve it. Even God does not want to desire to make it better. He doesn't want to cleanse it or wash it. He wants to put it to death. Erase. Remove. And David here in Psalm chapter 51 understands that truth. He says to God, if you are going to deal with this terrible fountain of evil that is coming up inside of me, this pollution that is in my soul, this sin nature, it must be put to death. It must be purged with hyssop. And then, and only then, will I be clean. This familiar verse, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. It's a familiar song to many people in the room. The thing about that song, when we sing it, it just has a melody that just kind of sings along. We kind of miss maybe the darkness of the song. Is that a fair way to say that? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. This is a song of longing, of of wailing, of weeping. The idea of being, being purged and cleansed is not a pleasant thing. Give me a willing spirit. He's saying, Lord, I'm I'm tied to this old life. I would naturally incline to go back to this old life again and again. This is what comes naturally, and even though it's wrong, the Apostle Paul talks about this in the New Testament. The very thing that I need to be doing, I don't do. And the things that I'm not supposed to do, that's where I'm drawn again and again and again. And I desperately need, he says, a new heart that would more naturally do good. He is asking for that. And so that's what he asks for. He says, give me a willing spirit that wants to do what you want me to do. Even though I may struggle through it at times. When we opened up the, the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 1 is this great uh, overture that kind of sets up the entire book of Psalms by asking God if he would help us or help the author to, to choose this fork in the road, to choose the path, to not go down that road where he would walk by or stand or sit in the way uh, of the seat in the way of the scornful. No, David wants a willing spirit that prompts him to go the other way. A willing spirit that would push him to where he can put his roots down in the streams of living water. And who's acquainted with the New Testament sees this and knows that God has provided this. God has provided this for you and for me through Jesus Christ and through the power and the work. Look at the book of Acts of the Holy Spirit. A comforter will come. The Spirit will come and He will assist you. Look at verse 13. What does God expect? Excuse me, what does David expect if God changes his spirit? He says, I commit. I will tell others about this. In modern times, we use the word evangelism. Evangelism is the spreading of the gospel, the Christian gospel by public preaching or of sharing a personal witness or a testimony. David is not content himself to be forgiven and leave it there. He's not content himself to be clean and leave it there. 
He's not content himself to call himself the elect or someone that God has chosen to, to show his mercy on and to put his feet up on the armchair there in the throne room of Jerusalem. He's not willing to do that. He's not even content to be joyful before God by himself. He will not be content until his broken life, his own broken life, serves to heal others. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners, therefore, will return unto you. Lord, open my mouth that I may declare your praise, which is what leads us to the final section. Continuing on verse 16. Verse 16 says this, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or will I give it? You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. How are we to approach God when we've been convicted of sin? We approach God with honesty with humility. We seek God's mercy. We seek his forgiveness. Thirdly here, we pursue genuine repentance and transformation. Genuine repentance and transformation. This is foundational to everything that we believe. Being a Christian, being a follower of Christ, being a child of God means genuinely being broken before God. John Piper says this. He says, don't make the mistake of thinking you get beyond brokenness in this life. Brokenness marks the life of God's happy children until the day that they die. We are all to be broken and contrite all the way to our heavenly home unless sin gets the proud upper hand. Being broken and contrite is not against joy or praise or witness. It's the flavor of Christian joy and praise and witness. We know that David loves Jerusalem. This is his city. He calls it Zion here, hoping that it would one day be known as the city of God. That's what Zion would be translated at. He longed to see, uh, he longed to build the temple. He wanted to see the temple built there. He wanted to see the walls of Jerusalem established in a way that would have strength for, for years to come. We know with an understanding of Scripture that he would not get to do this himself. That God, because of his sin, would not allow him to do this himself. And it was son Solomon that takes the throne and is able to see these things come to fruition. As the king, he knows that he himself now has caused the whole nation of Israel to be in jeopardy because of his own sin. And for a man after God's own heart, this truly would have to be the worst case scenario. And so David says, God, what you desire is not sacrifices on the altar. What you desire is that my affections be for you and for you alone. You see, David gives us a picture here that's actually fairly frightening. A picture of all the people coming together, offering sacrifices, worshiping exactly as had been prescribed in Scripture, but still being off from God's standard. David has learned and he knows and he is trying to communicate to anyone who will listen that God was not interested in their burnt offerings and animals because of his own sin and because of his own guilt and because of the conviction that it isn't genuine. It's always good to evaluate where our own affections 
lie. But it can be hard. It can be difficult to be honest with ourselves. And so a passage like this will require us to, to have a very thoughtful time with ourselves. We can ask ourselves to decipher how genuine is our worship. How authentic are we before the Lord? Asking yourself things like this. What am I most afraid of losing? And it may give a picture towards what you're actually dealing with. Or what is your greatest nightmare? Because the answer to that question will reveal the thing that you worship the most. And they may be good things. But they may show you that that's really where your deepest affections your greatest hopes and dreams are, and do they align with the God of the Scriptures? As the band comes forward this morning, as we come to a time of closing, the spiritual walls of the city, David tells us here, the walls being a symbol of the security that they experience, the walls are under attack because of the evil that David has done. So now he says, Lord, in your greatness, Lord, in your goodness, and by your forgiving grace, will you build it all back up? Will you, will you build it up again? Will you heal the hurt that has come upon my people? Will you uh, repair the work that has been, been done in a damaging way in this kingdom? Then, he says, then my worship, then our worship, then our, our corporate time. Remember, this is a, a corporate letter, a corporate poem for the whole congregation to hear. He says, then our worship will be real. Our worship will be authentic and genuine. It won't be just merely a form. Every song that's sung, every psalm that is read, every prayer that is uttered will not be mechanical going through the motions. It will not be a perfunctory repetition of words, but it will be the healthy outpouring of what has already gone inside of the heart, of a heart that has been cleansed and a heart that has been set free. This is the end game. This is what a convicted heart looks like after God has cleansed it. Isn't this what we desire? Isn't this what you desire? Certainly what David desires. I'd assume that there's some people in the room this morning you're sitting here and you're saying to yourself, that's all well and good for those of you who have something that you can confess publicly or that you can talk to God about and move on from. But you don't know what I have done. You don't know where I have been. And spiritually speaking, my life is a polluted mess. Spiritually speaking, I can be confident that God is bigger than that. The reality is what we see here, this man after God's own heart, the idea, the even, even the thought for a moment that someone that you and I were to meet that was guilty of murder, guilty of the worst thing, adultery, guilty of the worst things that you can imagine, that God would continue to use that person for the sake of an entire kingdom. We know that that's the truth. And I can be confident in that. And I can, I can be confident in the fact that he is willing to forgive me as well. Because this psalm is giving us the answer. I told you there's 34 times in this psalm where the word me is brought out. There's only one time where David asked God not to do something. It's in verse 11. 
David says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. The one thing that he begs God not to do, the one thing that he could not bear to happen is, is that God would turn his face. He says, do not turn from me. Do not take your presence from me because life would be unbearable. I could not go any more days worth living. There's no days worth living without you. You know what? God doesn't do that. And you know why? Because everything that David is asking, everything that David is asking God not to do, he did to his one and only son. There was Jesus, holy and blameless, the Son of God, dying on the cross. And in his moment of greatest agony, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. In that moment, Jesus is cast out of the presence of his Father, and God pours out his wrath on Jesus. The judgment that King David was deserving of, the, the judgment that you are deserving of, the judgment that anyone in this room, anyone on this planet is deserving of, the judgment that I am deserving of. Jesus was cast out of his Father's presence so that you and I would never have to be. That's how I know that he loves us. That's how I know that he is willing to forgive us. Because the magnitude of our sin is nothing in light of the magnitude of his sacrifice. There is no sin so great that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cover it. This morning we know and we realize that the work of creating a clean heart is a painful one. But I want to tell you the same thing the Apostle Peter told those who are listening in the book of Acts at Pentecost. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. My prayer for this church, for this congregation, again, for anyone who's listening, whether it's online or here in this room, is that, that we would be a people of continual repentance. Jesus taught his disciples. He said, this is how you ought to pray every single day. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Daily we are to remind ourselves and confess to God that while sin saturates our hearts through and through, we are polluted. We serve. We worship. A sacrifice has been given on our behalf that is far more powerful, far more great than what we have. We're going to sing a song to close here this morning, and that'll be the end of our service. If you want to write something on a connection card to, that I can follow up with later, I would thoroughly enjoy that. I'll meet you in the back after the service. But we are going to sing a song. The bridge says, I will build my life upon your love. It is my firm foundation. This morning, would you join us in authentic worship as we stand as we sing would you stand with us as we stand and sing knowing and believing that God has done more than we could ever ask or imagine let us worship together